hard as we ought on healthy relationships with fellow believers, uh, I want to give you a chance to interact with one another about this important subject over the next few moments. And so in a second, I'll ask you to stand to your feet and make some friends with two or three around you and interact around this question. Uh, is it more important for Christians to have good relations with other Christians than it is for non-Christians to be rightly related to one another. Is there a difference? Is it more important for Christians to pursue healthy relationships with one another than for those who don't know Christ? If so, why? So I would like for you to stand to your feet and have a discussion along those lines. And then when you're just plumb out of things to say to one another... Uh, would you address your comments to Almighty God? I won't interrupt you. I would like for you to pray that he would help us to pursue and have healthy relationships here. So when you're finished chatting with one another, chat with the Lord. All right. Thank you very much, folks. <laughs> I'm interrupting, I know. But thank you. You've given me enough time to prepare the message. I appreciate it. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for enjoying relationships with one another. That's the idea. Much appreciated. Hey, before I forget, happy Hanukkah. Thank you. In honor of Hanukkah, which is the festival of lights, we put up a bunch of Hanukkah bushes. <laughs> it's not so horrible if you forgot Hanukkah, but this is something that may be a, a little more horrible. Uh, the first Wednesday night of every month, our uh, prayer ministry provides an opportunity for anyone, member, non-member, visitor, regular, uh, to get together in a, in a more intimate setting than this is so as to pray. I didn't allow much time for us to do so now, and I apologize uh, for that. There are other things on the agenda. But later tonight, first Wednesday night of every month, in room 117, you're invited to come spend some time. You might be able to spend... Uh, the full hour of time praying with uh, folks you have the Lord Jesus in common with. Maybe you're just going to be there for five or ten minutes because there's something very pressing on your mind and you have other things to do. That's fine. There are absolutely no rules. Nobody is excluded. So if you come, you'll probably get more done in praying together with a few others 
then all the philosophizing and conversation and worrying and anxiety and sleepless nights could ever do. Prayer is a powerful, powerful privilege that the Lord Jesus has given us. And let's face it, it's an oft-neglected privilege we have. Think about carving out time, just as you are. No special garments, no vestments, no nothing. Uh, just because the Lord Jesus Christ, the high priest, has been the mediator into a better covenant, think about the access, the ease of access you and I have to come before the Most High God and talk to him just like we're his children, sons and daughters, to a dad, a papa, an Abba father who really, 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 really has his eye upon us and who cares about us. So that's an important time. It's provided first Wednesday night of every month. Room, what room? 117, 730, uh, when we conclude the service tonight, you're invited to come. Well, we're going to continue our study in the book of, well, some people call it numbers, and I do as well. Uh, but in the original Hebrew, it's called In the Wilderness because it represents Israel's wilderness wanderings. They were leaving a place, and they were on their way to another. They're not where they once were. They're not where they will be. They're in between. They're in the journey. And I thought this book it, it would be profitable for us, and I think it is, uh, because we're too in a journey. We are no longer where we used to be. We've been set free. The penalty of our sin has been paid by the Lord Jesus. We've been delivered. So we're no longer there, but we're no longer where we will be. That is our new Jerusalem. We're not there yet. So we too are in between us. We're in, in the wilderness. We're wandering. And we want to do so in better fashion than ancient Israel did. Soon, sadly, we'll see in the book of Numbers that though they got off to a good start, as perhaps many of us have, they didn't stay that way, sadly. They really, really went astray. And they got into trouble in the wilderness. And so what could have been a much more enjoyable, direct route, took them 40 years. Well, we don't want to do that. We want to make haste uh, without... Uh, Getting off track, we want to keep our eyes set on the destination, which is our land of promise. And so we want to do it in better fashion than Israel did. So thus far in the book, just to sum up, the nation of about two and a half million have been ordered. Uh, they were a slave people, or rather disorganized slave people, and God wanted them to be a constituted community of faith. So he gave them a constitution called the Ten Commandments, and he also gave them functions. Everyone in the camp was given a banner under which he or she was to be placed. It was a representation of their position and their purpose in the camp. Everyone was important, though there was quite diversity of function in the camp. So they were ordered and they were given their assignments. And they were reminded then that they must live as a holy community. How could it be otherwise that a community amongst whom the most holy God would choose to dwell would be anything less than holy as he is holy? And so God made it clear. They must approach him with holiness. And then we saw that God gave some guidelines with regard to how they would relate to him. But something has not been addressed yet and will be tonight in the text at hand. God spoke to them about how they were to properly relate to him. But now he's going to speak to them about how they are to relate to one another. You know why? The vertical dimension, us relating to God, is surely vital and important. But so, too, is the way God's people relate horizontally to one another. In fact, you can't have a good vertical relationship with Almighty God unless you're related rightly, unless we relate 
rightly together as God's children, as brothers and sisters under one father. And so God's going to give guidelines. Why? Listen, they're supposed to get through the wilderness together. They can't do it alone. There's no solo journey in the wilderness. They're not going to make it. They're going to run into opposition and obstacles. And if they were in opposition to one another, they would be off target, out of kilter. They wouldn't be able to face the enemy together and pose a united front. And so if there were interpersonal relationship conflicts, God said, though they may perhaps be unavoidable, they must of necessity be resolved immediately as quickly as possible. And so God's going to show them exactly how to resolve conflicts that they may come to have with one another during the camp experience and while they're on the move going through the wilderness. So here are the guidelines that God gives to them. It's in Numbers 5, beginning in verse 5. Numbers 5, verse 5. That's where we left off last time we were together, which was, it seems, uh, like quite a long while ago, but it was just a few weeks as I recall. Here we are in Numbers 5, verse 5. Then the Lord spoke to Moses. That's what he did. He had a chosen representative through whom he spoke directly. Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak. Then Moses was to communicate what God said to others. Speak, in this case, to the sons of Israel. When a man or woman, so what's about to come, has no gender bias, the guidelines God gives for resolving interpersonal conflicts here, as you will see, are gender neutral. They apply to everyone. When a man or woman commits any of the sins of mankind, what does that mean? It means the sins mankind is prone to commit. It means transgression characteristic of humankind, but not characteristic of God. The sins that men and women are prone to commit and the sins that men and women are prone to commit against each other, those are the sins of mankind. They're committed by people and against people. So when that happens, and one acts unfaithfully against the Lord. Now, wait just a second. We just read that these sins are sins of mankind committed by people against people. And yet here, what we're seeing very explicitly stated is that when a person sins against another person in the camp, that person is in effect acting unfaithfully against the Lord. Boy, that says a lot. It says a a sin, a transgression against a fellow brother or sister is like unto a sin against our father. Now, that casts an entirely different light, I think, on offenses we may give uh, to one another. It makes it a much more serious kind of a thing. It makes it look like it's not interpersonal. It makes it look like when there's an offense, a wrongdoing, uh, when there's a breach in the relationship between brothers and sisters, it actually impacts, affects, impinges on our relationship with our Father, with Almighty God. Well, when this happens and one acts unfaithfully against the Lord and that person is guilty, verse 7, then he shall, and now you're going to see certain steps, he shall do. When someone has committed one of the sins men commonly commit against other men, this being an offense really to Almighty God, when this happens, this is what that person is to do. He shall, here's the first thing, confess. He shall confess his sins, which he has committed. And confess simply means agree with God. 
That means if God stipulated that this particular offense is a violation of one of his laws, then you have to call it what it is. In other words, you cannot pare down your sin by calling it a bad decision. That's what famous people on the news do all the time. I made a mistake. No, no, no. Look, 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 look. A mistake is when you're riding down the road and you're supposed to make a right turn, but instead, oh, you make a left turn. That's a mistake. But when you have an affair with someone who is not your wife, that is not a mistake. That is called a deliberate, blatant, premeditated transgression, violation against the holy law clearly stated and coming from an intensely holy God. It's not a bad decision. It's not a mistake. It is a sin. You have not confessed your wrongdoing unless you agree with God about it. If God says it is sin and you said, I had a bad day, I made a bad decision, that is not true confession. So as an act of love, we can't allow one another to minimize our sin. We have to label it what it is. Otherwise, you ain't dealing with it. And if you ain't dealing with it, it's not dealt with. And if it's not dealt with, it's going to cause fracture in relationships and it's going to infect the entire camp. It's very, 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 very important. So if it's sin, it's sin. It's not a mistake. So, so he has to confess his sin, which he has committed. Look, 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 look. I can't blame this on my parents. <clears throat> I cannot blame my present behavior and transgressions against them. Don't misunderstand. Uh, they may have contributed to, to, to the way I am. But if God calls certain things sin, then that implies it's a voluntary choice I make to sin or not. I can't say I'm obligated to transgress God's law because I wasn't breastfed as an infant or because my dad did not attend my little league games. Let me get worse. I cannot excuse my present behavior on the fact that I was abused as a child. I cannot say I am an alcoholic because my father was an alcoholic. No. I can say my temptation to choose the same coping mechanism as he did is greater because he modeled, mismodeled this for me. But even when I do it, I did it. And I have to confess it before God. So I want to understand the way I am. Don't misunderstand. And there's nothing wrong with that. I want to understand what makes me tick. But I don't want to go on an archaeological hunt into the past to find some basis upon which I can be excused from the sins I commit today. The good news is, I sin because I chose to. Why is that good news? Because I don't have to choose to. That's why. I'm not obligated to the past when I have Jesus in the present. You understand? So, so this step, I mean, you can read through it real quick. But, but, but I'm going to tell you, this is important. Confess his sins. Agree with God about it. His sins which he has committed. That's the first step. But that's not all. After he's done that, the wrongdoer who has wronged a brother, he has confessed his sin. Second, he shall make restitution in full for his wrong. 
restitution. What that means is, if the wrongdoer is truly sorry for the wrong he has done to another brother or sister, he has to do everything he could to restore that person to their pre-sin state of affairs. What was their life like before you sinned against them? If you're really serious about making this right, you got to do everything you can to make full restitution for what you took from them. Now, the fact that this is speaking about this kind of restitution implies, and you'll see this a little more clearly in the next few words, that what we're talking about here are property crimes within the camp. Property crimes. Meaning, if you take that which is not yours but belongs to a brother, you will confess it as your sin before God, and you will make full restitution of that piece of property to your brother. That's kind of what it means. So there's confession, but confession that is not backed up with actions that are consistent with it is just words into the air. I'm sorry, kind of a thing. Prove it. Put your money where your mouth is. If you mouthed your confession of sin to God, then you must make financial restitution to the brother in the camp who from whom you have misappropriated property. Okay, first step, confession. Second, restitution. But there's more. He shall add to it one-fifth, 20%. He shall add to it one-fifth of it and give it to him whom he has wronged. So here's why I say I think we're talking about property crimes here. Otherwise, you couldn't do the math. Here's the deal. You got two ladies. They're two sisters. They're in the, in the faith. They're in the camp of ancient Israel. They're on the road to their land of promise. God set them free from sin. They have him in common. One eyeballs the other lady's pot. She likes it. She takes a fancy to it. She steals the pot. She gets caught. It's a serious matter. It's an offense against the, the other lady? Sure. But we read earlier, it's an offense against God. It has to be confessed. It's sin. Thou shalt not steal. It's a sin. It's not a mistake. It's not a bad decision. This person uh, rebelled against God's law and took that which was not hers. Okay, let's say the pot was valued at $10. She has to confess it is sin. She did it. She has to make full restitution. She has to give the lady $10. In other words, to restore her to the state of affairs she had before the offense was committed against her. She had a pot before. She must have the pot or its value after. He has to give her $10. But that's not all. This says in addition, you have to add one-fifth, which is 20%. So in this case, 20% of $10 is what? Yeah, two bucks. So, so $10 and $2 is? You don't give her $10 if you're real serious about this. You give her $12. Why does God ordain that? I'll tell you why. You're in the camp. You have redemption and the Redeemer in common. And a fellow redeemed individual sins against you by misappropriating your prop, by taking that which is not yours. Your heart has suddenly become hardened to that person. You know that person has confessed it, but you are still, you are still at odds with that person. You are so, you feel so betrayed. 
You don't want anything to do with that person. So God says this will help. Not only must you make restitution, I want you to do above and beyond it. 20% above and beyond because this will have the effect perhaps of so softening the heart of the wronged individual that the wronged individual may be willing to make peace with you and then there'll be peace in the camp because an interpersonal conflict between two can affect the flavor of the entire faith community. So you see what God's saying? So confess, make restitution, add to it one-fifth, but it's not over yet. Can you see how seriously, how seriously it is that God takes the repair of broken relationships between, in our case, fellow Christians? It's very, very serious. But wait a second. So God says all of this stuff. But what if the wronged party is not there anymore? You know, the lady, she, the, the pot holder, she, 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 uh, she, the one who had her pot taken. Let's say she died. What are you going to do then? Well, God has a provision. He says, you must then give full restitution plus one-fifth to the nearest relative of the offended party who is now deceased. But, but what if the relatives are dead or gone. Then what do you do? Well, God thought of that too. Check it out. Verse 8. Verse 8. But if the man has no relative, the man is the wronged party. If he has no relative to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution which is made for the wrong must go to the Lord for the priest. It's interesting, huh? The law of restitution. Next of kin. No next of kin? You bring it to the priest. In so doing, you're making an offering to Almighty God. That's what it says to do right here. Is the transgressor done? No. Something else. He has to confess. He has to make restitution. He has to add one-fifth. He has to provide to the relatives. If the offended party is not there, if there are no relatives, he has to make this offering to the priest at the tabernacle. And after having done all that, he has to add to all this the ram of atonement by which atonement is made for him. Why? It's called the guilt offering. This person has offended another human being. But as we've seen, this person has also offended God. You make restitution to the human being, the fellow brother or sister you have offended, but you also, also have to clear the slate with Almighty God. So you offer this. It's called the guilt offering because you are guilty before Almighty God. The thief stole in secret, but God sees everything. Nothing. There is no secret sin with Almighty God. You have to square the account with him too. So the horizontal relationship has to be straightened out, but so too the vertical relationship. Can you see how seriously God takes sin in the camp? You see? We don't, but he does. We ought to, because he does. He takes it seriously. So the ram of atonement must be provided as a sacrifice, a guilt offering, to appease the righteous indignation of an intensely holy God against whom this person has just sinned. Notice the order of things. Um, making right... The wrongdoing one has done to a fellow believer must take place before one makes the offering to God. Do you see how, how this happens? 
The Ram of Atonement is called for as the last element in this chain of required uh, elements to make things right. It's as if God is saying, do not (laughs) come to me in worship. Do not come to me with your commitments, with your words, with your service, with your sacrifice, with your offerings. I do not want your Ram of Atonement until you have made it right with your brother or sister. Isn't that interesting? It's as if God is saying, you may think you're going to be able to jump over that wrongdoing by jumping into communion with me. That won't work. I won't let you do it. No, this is important. I'm the dad. I want my kids to get along. When two of my kids are not getting along because one of them has wronged the other, that wrongdoer must not come to dad without making it right with the other kid. Does that sound... A little like something we read in the New Covenant? Yeah, it's interesting. Because everything throughout the Bible is perfectly consistent. God didn't change his mind about anything when he got to the New Testament. His character, his ways, his guidelines are exactly the same in Old and New Testament. They progress and develop more clarity and precision by the time you get to the New Testament But his procedures are the same throughout. And so we read these words. These are the words of God in Matthew chapter 5. Now, this is a long way away in time and culture and all the rest from numbers all the way to Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, which I think you are uh, aware of. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar... And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your offering there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Moses in Numbers, Matthew in Matthew are essentially saying the same thing because God told them to say the same thing. Way back in the Old Covenant, affirmed in the New Covenant... God is essentially saying wrongs between brothers is so important that the wrongdoer should leave his offering of worship, of service, of finances, of dedication, of time offered to God. Leave it where it is. Drop it and go and be made right horizontally. Resolve interpersonal conflict. Before you make any offering to Almighty God. And so what God is doing in Matthew is keeping things in the Hebrew context. Because, folks, I'm not just telling you this because I'm a little Jewish guy. Everything in the Bible is in a Hebrew context. It's not about you becoming Jewish. It's it's, It's about you handling the Bible with accuracy. Everything in the Bible has to be seen through a Hebrew context, whether you like it or not. Take it up with Jesus, who, by the way, last time I checked, was a Hebrew Messiah. So what we just read in Matthew, the New Testament makes no sense unless you understand the Old Covenant sacrificial system. Here's what's going on. A Jewish person in the old days. Here's the picture Matthew is given. Why is Matthew doing this? Oh, he's a Jew, too. That's that's just the way it is. Because God is really, really smart. So he chose. Not it. Okay. So, so, so here's the deal. Uh, Matthew is referring the people back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. A Jewish person who sinned is coming 
to the tabernacle or temple precincts. It's a striking and dramatic occasion because many other people are even there before him. He hears the bleeding of sheep. There's no such thing as an animal volunteering to be sacrificed. And the smells, the sights, the sounds, it was just an extraordinary thing. Hundreds of priests officiating at the altar of sacrifice for sin. Think about it. You've sinned. You've come. It might have been on a Jewish holy day. It might have been on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. Who knows? It could have been on another occasion because this took place all the time. And you bring something valuable from your flock. It's a, it's an animal. According to, 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 to the law of Moses, it is prepared for sacrifice and you bring it and you, you, you're waiting in line. There's just a throng of people. There are hundreds. No, there are thousands of you. Everyone is aware of his or her sin and that it needs to be covered. It needs to be atoned for. And God appointed the priests to do this uh, on your behalf. And so you bring your lamb, your bull, your ram in the case we just read about. And finally you get to the priest and he instructs you to lay your hands on the ram. Because you're going to recite a prayer which essentially says, Oh God, would you accept the sacrifice of this innocent living thing from me? That's essentially what you're going to say. You're going to say, oh, God, let this lamb be my substitute for sin. And while you're doing that, could you imagine? This is not casual. It's not frivolous. This is desperately, deathly serious. Think about the drama of it all. Suddenly, God's Ruach HaKodesh, his Holy Spirit, convicts you of unfinished business with another brother or sister who you have wronged. And God says in that case, through Matthew, stop in your tracks. Tell the priest, I'll be back. I'll be back. Hang on to the lamb. And you awkwardly, clumsily, you split the scene. People are looking at you like you're Meshuggah, like you're crazy. And you are. You're crazy in love with the word of God. And you know, he said, leave your sacrifice at the altar and go and be made right. What it says in Numbers 5 is reiterated in Matthew 5 because it's the same author through different human agents. It's the same divine author, Almighty God. This is just how serious it is. And so the person there at the altar of sacrifice, he's not to say, oh, I realize I'm at odds with another brother, uh, you know, in my tribe who I sinned against. And, you know, I'm going to make it right as soon as I get finished, uh, God, making this offering of this gift to you here. You know, then I'll go when I'm done with all this and finish up with the priest. I'll go and make it right. No. God says, stop. Don't put it off one more moment. He's told to stop what he's doing. Hold off even on making an offering to God at this point. Make things right. With his brother. Leave your gift to God at the altar and be reconciled to one another. What does this tell us? It tells us that God wanted disruption in the fellowship of believers to be avoided. But if it couldn't be avoided, he wanted it to be resolved. Lickety split. Not when I get around to it. Now, don't misunderstand this. What Matthew is saying implies... Not that somebody doesn't like you, but that you wronged somebody. So the New Testament says, as far as you are able, be at peace with all men. Implying you're not going to be able to be at peace with all men. Because somebody in your church is just not going to like you. And you're racking your brain. 
And you know you don't get along. And for the life of you, you don't know why. You're not being convicted of any sin because you didn't commit any. That person just doesn't see you apparently the way God does. That person sees you through a different lens. That person doesn't like you. Doesn't like the way you walk or talk or dress. Doesn't like your sense of humor. I don't know what the deal is. That's just the way it is. Now, I'm not saying that's to be taken lightly, but that's not what Matthew's talking about. No, no, no. In that case, you keep worshiping. You keep serving. You keep honoring God. And you say, God, I don't know what's going on with this other guy. But every time I see him, he looks like he just hates me. Now, there may come a time when you're just going to have to go to that person and say, have I offended you in any way? If so, please let me know. I'm not aware of that, but I, I would like to know so I could ask for your forgiveness and we could be made right. But Matthew's not talking about it. Matthew is talking about you committed a deliberate wrongdoing. There's nothing mysterious about it. You wronged another. You have to go and you have to go and make it right. So that's kind of what's what's going on. Well, let me bring it. Let me bring it home here to us today. You come to church Sunday. And you're coming so as to offer to God your time and your talents to give him your attention You want to sing, you want to worship, you want to serve, you want to teach, you want to be an usher, you want to serve as deacon, whatever it is, sing in the choir, whatever it is. You're coming because you love God and you want to give that to him. You give of your time, of your talents, you give of your finances, all the rest. And while you're in the course of being here in church and doing the things of church, his Holy Spirit, (laughs) who indwells you, really disturbs you. You can hardly focus on Almighty God because you know someone, two, three seats, two, three rows away from you is someone you have wronged. You've wronged. Maybe you've entered into some business transaction. Maybe you've engaged that person's services. Maybe that person's a contractor in the church and you like to work with Christians and you engage that person's service, but you didn't pay that person. Brother in Christ. Maybe you... Maybe, maybe you... Maybe you engaged that person's services and when he gave you the bill, he said, it's too much. I don't want to, you know, give me a... It's like the preacher who his car was broken and he went to a local auto mechanic to have it repaired. And he said, you know, I I hope you can fix this. I also hope you can give me a good deal because I'm just a poor preacher. And the guy said, yeah, I know. I heard you on Sunday. (laughs) See, 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 we don't do that to one another. If we engage each other's services, it's not to get a discount. (sighs) It's to help each other out. And so, and so maybe you're aware of that. Maybe, maybe you say, I've wronged this person. I've defrauded this person. A fellow believer. And here I am making a mockery of the whole thing by serving our father. But our father is very, very displeased. Because I have offended another one of his kids. Then you've got to stop in your tracks and you've got to be... You've got to make it right. How do you make it right? The same steps given in Numbers apply today. But you've got to stop what you're doing. You can't think you can fool God. He wants us to be reconciled. Because, folks, we have an enemy and it's not one another. It's a terrible, uh, vicious uh, lion who seeks to devour us. And he prowls about Seeking one to devour. And that's why we got to get down the road together. Otherwise, you're going to pick us off one at a time. 
That's why we gotta do more than just tolerate one another. We, we, we have to cultivate relationships. We have to forgive each other. We have to cooperate. We have to love. We have to accept. Lest the roaring lion pick us apart one at a time. A fellow Christians, that's not the enemy. Oh no. We can't. Oh no, we can't do that. God says, God says you gotta, you gotta, you, you gotta work it out. So, so as I was studying this, I was thinking of this. My people centuries ago used to go up to Yerushalayim, Jerusalem. They would make pilgrimage, generally three times a year on certain special holidays. They would go from all over the world and kind of a, they'd make a processional. It was called going up to Jerusalem because of the elevation of the city. It's up. So from whatever direction you go to Jerusalem, you're going up to Jerusalem. And when they went, they would sing. They were called songs of ascent because they're ascending songs of ascent and uh, as a blessing some of them are preserved for us today in the book of psalms they're called songs of ascent they're, they're i'm not making this up they're preserved in in the song book the hymn book of ancient israel the book of psalms one of them the shortest is psalm 133 it's only three verses in it listen to the first one first verse psalm 133 Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. How good is it? Verse 2. Well, it's like, it's like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, the high priest, coming down upon the edge of his robes. What is that a picture of? The high priest is anointed with oil. It drifts from his head to his beard, all the way down to the hem of his garment. And in the process, it falls on his breastplate, on which is an ephod, on which is the symbol of each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the oil covers them all. It's a symbol of unity of the travelers in the camp. Diverse, different tribes. Different likes, different dislikes. But, but when brothers dwell together in unity, oh, it's like oil coming down from the high priest's head and uniting in a harmonious fashion all 12 tribes. Then verse 3 says, well, in case you don't get that, it's like the dew of Hermon. Mount Hermon. Hermon is in the north of Israel. It's at such altitude that sometimes there's snow on it. You could actually ski Israel, believe it or not. And when the snows melt, the waters come down. They feed the Jordan River and they go all the way down south and they pour all the way in to the Sea of Galilee and then the Dead Sea. And so verse 3 says, it is like unity amongst brothers is like it's like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion, which is another word for Jerusalem coming down the mountains of Zion. Wait, Hermon, Mount Hermon is in the north. Jerusalem is way down in the south. But unity amongst brothers is like dew coming down from Mount Hermon in the north, flowing all the way down to Mount Zion in the south. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. Here's the picture. The whole country, northern tribes, southern tribes, who might otherwise be at odds with one another, 
It's a picture of their unity. Dew from the north coming and refreshing those who live in the south with the promise, the blessing from the high priest of life forever. It's a reminder of what each has in common. The gift of eternal life given by the high priest who anointed them all with the oil of salvation. It's a picture of dew from the north uniting brethren, north, south, east, west, black, white, Jew, Gentile, old, young, rich, poor, united under the blessing of life forever. And when they traveled, the Jewish pilgrims, it wasn't a solo journey. And nobody sang a solo song. They didn't sing alone, and they didn't travel alone. They did it all together. And this is one of the songs that they would sing. Those are the words, thousands of years old, still sung today. Behold, how good, how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. They were different. They came to Mount Zion the city of promise, Jerusalem, from many different walks of life, from many different regions, from many different tribes, but they traveled together and they sang together because they were together under the anointing of the high priest who bequeathed to them in common the gift of eternal life. Listen, my fellow Christians, we too are pilgrims. That's why it's so uncomfortable to be alive today. This is not our home. We are pilgrims passing through. We are no less wanderers in the wilderness than my ancient people were in theirs. And we are no less on the way to our new Jerusalem than they were as to their geographic land called Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem is a far better place. Folks, we are not permitted the luxury of dissension, division, disrespect, and disruption in our relationships with one another. The world is permitted that. And it doesn't cost that much. But when you, when people united under the blessing of life forever, bequeathed by the giver of life, are at odds with one another, those people out there see it. And they don't want to be a part of us. See, they'll know you are Christians by your love for one another. We don't have the luxury of parting company. We don't have the luxury of divorce. We have lowered the bar because it's commonplace. Churches split. People leave to go to another church two miles down the road. And they take their unfinished business to the next place. But God said, while you're at the altar of that church, I will bring to mind a disruption in the relationship between you and a brother at the last church. And if you think you're going to buy me off at this church without making that right first... 
Take your hands off the sacrificial lamb and go be made right with your brother. That's how important it is. Could I tell you something which is so good? We are not commanded to like each other. It's only a bonus if we do. God never commands us to do the impossible. I have my ways, you have yours, we have our ways, we have our styles. Don't have to like it. We are commanded to love each other. It's a non-negotiable. Non-negotiable. There's a lot at stake. Holidays. Parents and grandparents love it when their children and grandchildren enjoy each other's company. You just stand back. I'm a parent. You just stand back and you watch. You see your kids interacting and enjoying each other. They used to fight when they were little kids. Now look at how they're... How much more our Heavenly Father, who suffered and died, to rescue us out of nothingness so as to be put into a family, so that we can be mishpocha family. How much more does he take delight in us? Not just during the holidays, but every day, enjoying each other's company, being good to one another, forgiving each other, not taking advantage of one another, not exploiting one another, not sleeping with one another outside the will of God. Come on. Not stealing from one another. Not entering into a contract with another Christian and failing to fulfill your obligations in the contract. It's unacceptable. Unacceptable. Make it right. Confess it. You sinned. Confess it. Two, make restitution fully. Three, add 20%. It's a good faith offer. Please let me win your heart, is what you're saying to the offended party. Four, where is your ram of atonement? Fall upon the blood of the Lord Jesus as the cleansing agent for for your sin. It's serious, serious business. So here's what we'll do. It's the application for tonight. Is anyone's name coming to your mind and in your head even as we speak about all this stuff right now? Do you have to make it right with that person? Nobody's asking you to do anything publicly or anything like that. Just beseech you. I know how agonizing it is for me when I sense I have offended someone and I wait too long. I can't study the Bible. I can't pray. I can't sing. Figuratively speaking, I can't look upon a holy God who is displeased because I've offended one of his kids. And as one of his kids, I don't care enough. Do yourself a favor. Get free. As soon as you're able, when we take leave of one another, call, write, email, visit, whatever means of communication is available to you and say, please forgive me. I have offended you. Work the steps of reconciliation. Let's get down the road together. We're being opposed, not by fellow Christians, 
a more hostile enemy is Islam. And we're fighting one another. All of Europe and uh, perhaps the United States, not too far down the road, is going to be enveloped by Islamic influence. And we're fighting one another. Come on. Come on. The enemy is not the person you're sitting next to. Though that person be demographically different than you. The enemy is the roaring lion who prowls about seeking someone to devour on our way in the wilderness journey, enticing us over here, getting us over there, and then devouring us. He can't pick us off when we're in the crowd of worshipers on our way up to our new Jerusalem, not making a solo journey, <clears throat> but singing in unison. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brother. He tov. Behold how good, good to the max it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Let's make a commitment. Not to divorce each other, not to split, not to separate, not to let uh, perceived, imagined or real offense go too long. Before we humble ourselves, take the initiative and try to make it right. It's important. Lord Jesus, this would be pleasing to you, wouldn't it? You saved us individually, but you saved us to be collectively your family. So as community members now, we have an obligation to the community to defend it, to protect it, to preserve its harmony and its unity. High priest, Yeshua, you have showered down upon us the oil of salvation. It has touched everyone here in the same way. No favorites, no special cases. We have debt to you in common. We have forgiveness of the debt by you in common. We have each other in common. Help us, Lord Jesus, to demonstrate to a watching world that our God has such a hold on us that we will hold on to one another until the time when we arrive together in our new Jerusalem. Help us, Lord Jesus, to make that commitment, to have that dedication, to right wrongs we have committed against one another, to seek to avoid wrongdoing, but to reconcile and resolve it as soon as we become aware of it. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.